0: Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter seven, Matthew chapter 7. I come to you today as the ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He has taken a long journey into heaven, according to Mark 13:34, and he left his servants and gave them authority in the earth, declarative authority. To preach His Word. These are not the words of Jonathan Crosby. I wish you could totally forget him. I wish that I knew how to preach in a way that would make you only think of the Lord Jesus Christ addressing these words to you. Because these are His words. You're turning to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, if you have a red letter edition Bible. is in the red writing because it's one sermon of the Lord Jesus Christ that gives you a synopsis of the Christian religion. It's a wonderful sermon. Delightful sermon. Short, concise, powerful, and covers many points of doctrine that give us a summary of truly following the Lord Jesus Christ. I am His ambassador. I beseech you, by God, as if He were here, for you to pay attention to these words, because these are most sober Words. Amen. I want to read the conclusion of this sermon, beginning at verse 13, through the end of the chapter. The conclusion begins at verse 13, and this is an invitation when Jesus Christ preaches. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes, of thorns, or figs, of thistles. Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree cannot bring, bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Jesus was not your typical politically correct preacher, nor was he refined and dignified, nor did he have good pulpit manner, nor did he preach a message that left people feeling good about themselves. He left, a mess- he left a message making people feel very convicted that they needed to do something about themselves or the fall of their house was going to be very great. Amen. This is the Sermon on the Mount. The first couple of verses of chapter 5 are why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. A great multitude was following the Lord Jesus Christ and he went into a mountain, sat down and taught the people. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. The other gospel accounts break this lesson up into sections. Here we have it all together. And it's wonderful reading because it's a synopsis of the Christian religion. It's a condensation of it with about 14 or 15 specific different lessons on how to live a righteous life. I want to emphasize verses 24 through 27. So look at them again with me. I want to read them again to you. I want you to remember these words because your life is the house under consideration. The wind, floods, rain that are coming, and waves, are the troubles of life, but most of all, they are the great day of judgment. And you will be washed away in that terrible day if you have not laid your foundation from your standpoint on obeying the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read them again. Verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And brethren, if we're found wanting in the great day of judgment, how great will be the fall of our lives. No matter how high we might have gotten in this world, Jesus would say, it is better for a man to gain his own soul than to gain the whole world. Because what is it if a man were to gain the whole world but to lose his own soul? It's not a trade. And that is to own the whole world, and none of us will ever come even close to that. So our souls are more important. I want all you children to know the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, about 14 or 15 lessons that teach you what Jesus Christ wants you to do in your life. It's a wonderful place to read to know the will of God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ setting aside all the religious leaders of His day and pointing out the true interpretation of Scripture and true religion and true righteousness The Pharisees of his day and the scribes of his day were like the fundamentalists of our day. They pick and choose what they will make as the criteria by which to measure a man. They modify the commandments of God to make them less binding. And the Lord Jesus Christ came along and restored those commandments to the binding force that God had originally intended for us in living our lives. And that's what we want to consider as an overview today. I want all of you young men To know the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I want you to understand his conclusion. I want you to understand the lessons. And hopefully in a quick survey, we can learn all those things this morning. But most of all, we, together, want to walk out of this place making sure that we are building our lives, our souls, on the rock of the sayings of Jesus Christ. And we do that by hearing them, and I'm going to preach them to you, but also by doing them. Right. Let us be doers of the word and not hearers only. Now we sing a song that our righteousness is only the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our rock. Uh, that we, we lay our, we, we're lay trusting in no other foundation than the Lord Jesus Christ. But this passage is not talking about Jesus being our rock of imputed Legal righteousness, this passage is talking about our obedience to his sayings being our claim to that righteousness by the evidence it gives us in order to shore up our house, our lives, so that when that great storm comes, we can face it with confidence. I know the Lord is mine. And you know, you know the assurance that you get when you're obeying him closely and you're walking with the Lord, you know that assurance that you have in your heart, and you know the lack of assurance you experience when you're disobeying Him. And so I want an event is coming that makes that tsunami of the Far East to be nothing. Nothing. When we stand before God and we are assailed by the fear of that great day unless we are standing on Him and we have obeyed Him, The Apostle Paul would say, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The Apostle knew that a terrible storm was coming. And that storm was when we would have to give an account of our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the context of this. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 looks pretty red, doesn't it? In your Bibles. For those of you with a red letter edition Bible, that's the sermon of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're starting at the end because we want to get his conclusion. Let's go to verse 13. The first aspect of his conclusion is, in verses 13 and 14, it's the lesson of the gate. Every man makes a choice in life. He makes a choice that is easy and popular, or he makes a choice that is hard and very unpopular. That's the lesson of verses 13 and 14. I've preached that lesson before. I don't want to belabor it right now. Jesus described his way, the way that leads to life. Life now and eternal life later. They go together. You can't have the one without the other. They go together. He described it as a broad gate, a a narrow gate, a straight gate and a narrow way. Straight meaning not that it's not crooked, but straight meaning that it's tight, restrictive, and hard. A straight gate and a narrow way. It is hard to get into the kingdom of heaven. The way to heaven is a difficult way. It is a way where we have to deny ourselves. It is taking up our cross daily to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. The other way, which leads to destruction, destruction now and destruction the day of judgment, is a wide gate and a broad way. And many there be that go in thereat. It's easy and it's popular and it's what is preached in most every church today because it fills the seats a whole lot faster than the straight gate and the narrow way. Do you understand that? You preach the straight gate and the narrow way, no one wants to hear that message. They want to hear the message that opens up wide, that includes any way you want to live. Jesus said about the straight gate and the narrow way, few there be that find it. And so this morning we have an assembly of few rather than an assembly of many. If we had an assembly of many, we would want to question our doctrine. Jesus Christ couldn't raise a congregation of many because his way was too straight and too narrow. Now that's quite a conclusion, isn't it? He's telling everyone you have two choices. You're going to walk out of here this morning and you're going to make two choices. Either you're going to be hard on yourself and press into the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what the Bible says about entering the kingdom of heaven? It says, the violent take it by force. Amen. Because it takes an upheaval in your life to truly please the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to turn your life upside down to please the Lord Jesus Christ. He says you're going to make two, one of two choices. Either you're going to enter into that straight gate and narrow way that is hard, difficult, and restrictive for your life in order to please me, or you're going to go in the broad way that everyone else is going in, and you'll end up in destruction. Then verses 15 through 20. In case any of those people were moved by the fact that some of their preachers were telling them it wasn't quite that hard, he uses six verses here. To describe false prophets and tell you how to identify them. And he says, by their fruits ye shall know them. And the word fruit there is part of the metaphor. Follow me for a minute. He uses the metaphor, do men gather grapes of thorns? The word fruit is being used relative to grapevines and thorns. Relative to fig trees and so forth. That's that's how the word fruit is is being used. Don't get confused by that word fruit. Look at the metaphor first, and then let's see what the Savior's comparison was. When you want to get some grapes, you don't go to a thorn bush. When you want grapes, you go to a grapevine because that's where grapes are. A thorn bush doesn't bear grapes. Right. If you want figs, you go to a fig tree. You don't go to a thistle. Because you go based on what it's producing, what it produces. A thistle produces thistles, and a thorn produces thorns, but a grapevine produces grapes. And so the word fruit is being used relative to the metaphor, but when we look at this passage, Jesus is saying Don't you think that any man can preach any message different than what I just gave you in 13 and 14. The way to heaven is tight, narrow, restrictive, and requires self-denial. If they have opened up that gate broader than that and made it easy, and there's many going into it, they are false prophets. And the way you measure them is by what they produce. What does a ministry produce? Holiness or carnality? That would be its fruit. And so you go where you know the fruit is godly. You would go toward the holiness. And you would avoid and know that a man whose ministry is resulting in carnality is a false prophet. Truth or error? Where is truth being taught as measured by God's word? What is a man's ministry producing? Just like if a vine produces grapes, you go there for grapes. You don't go to a thorn bush. Because all you're going to get is thorns there. So you look at what it produces. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is pointing out, don't let anyone deceive you. They are a false prophet. They have put on sheep wool to look like they're connected to me. But inside, they are ravening wolves. They are out to destroy you. They are Satan's apostles. And didn't we learn that in 2 Corinthians 11? That Satan has his own set of apostles? So you look at a ministry as to what it produces. Does it produce holiness or carnality in lives? Does it produce truth or error? Light or confusion? Growth or dependence? God's glory or man's glory? Love of scripture Scripture or love of learning? A difference in all of those. And that is how you measure a false prophet. If his ministry results in carnal members, a dependence upon a man, the man getting the glory, glory in learning, confusion, false prophet. You want to look for a ministry that gives you truth and light and a solid foundation of holiness and righteousness, which is what Jesus Christ was giving them. But he's warning them in his concluding remarks you're going to run into lots of preachers that try to make it easier than what I've just said. They're false prophets. They look like ministers of righteousness, but they're ministers of Satan. Verse 21 through 23. He's continuing in his conclusion. And he points out that not every one of those false prophets are going to make it to heaven. He's going to say many of them are not going to make it. And then he deals with many professors who are going to profess that they trusted in Him, but it's not going to be good enough. And that 21st verse is very important for us. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. The true measure of a righteous man is doing God's will. It's not saying, Lord, Lord. It's not praying the sinner's prayer. I am sick of that lie in our nation. That cannot be found in the Bible. There is no place in the Bible to give anyone assurance for a momentary decision to follow Jesus. That doesn't mean anything in the Bible. The Bible doesn't even know of such a thing. There isn't even a description of it. It's he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven is the evidence of eternal life. Those are the ones that will enter in. They will not enter in because of their obedience but that obedience is the evidence that they are truly saved. I am so sick of decisional salvation. And somebody can mouth a rote sinner's prayer that has prayed for them. I've heard it so many times. I've seen it taught. I've seen it done. Pray after me. Dear Lord. Dear Lord. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner, and I want to be saved. I want to be saved. Take away my love for men. Wait a minute, but I like men. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. An evangelistic tape produced by the Christian television station in our city, where a woman was supposedly leading a sodomite, to salvation the Lord Jesus Christ. And in her prayer, she said, Take away my love of men. And he said, he popped up, because he's on video, he popped up and said, But I like men. And later in that video, that woman evangelist professes that Bucky has a new life in Jesus Christ. Bucky doesn't have anything except a delusion given to him by a false prophet that he might have done something that pleased God when he did nothing that pleased God. Right. I am sick of that decisional salvation that is taught everywhere. We are in such a small minority. The Word of God says this. The Lord Jesus Christ would say this if he were here today. Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That is true religion. They say, Call upon the name of the Lord, and thou shalt be saved. Jesus said, Do the will of my Father which is in heaven, and you'll be saved. And that's the difference. You say, But I, I can read in Romans chapter 10 that it does say, Call upon the name of the Lord. Yes. And you're to understand that in the rest of the New Testament, that when you call, you better start obeying. Amen. And any call without obeying is no call at all. We would come to James chapter 2 where they would ridicule such a call without obedience. And so here's his conclusion. He says in verse 22, Many, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, they're going to profess that they have a relationship with me, but I am going to profess to them, I never knew you. And that's what counts. We know that Jesus Christ knows us and has accepted us, By the works of righteousness that flow from our lives. Peter looked at Cornelius when he first met him. And he said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, even Italy, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And that's where we stand as a church. And our doctrine is different. From the other churches of this city. And so we come to verses 24 through 27. Which are the text about building a house upon a rock. Now when the sermon ended, look at verses 28 and 29. It says it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings. The people were astonished at his doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. The people were astonished at how Jesus Christ taught. Because he taught them as one having authority. And not as the scribes and the Pharisees. He had authority. He came from God. He had laid out a message that when he got to the end, he said, if you don't do it the way I just taught it, you're going to be washed away in the storm that's coming and I will profess to you that I never knew you. That was a serious message. No scribe had ever stood and preached anything like that. And all the refined and dignified pulpiteers that have ever come between Jesus Christ and this day They don't preach the Word of God like it should be. You don't need refined men. You don't need educated men. You need faithful men that will open the Word of God and preach it just as Jesus Christ gave it. Amen. Eloquence is a damnation because it makes people comfortable and arouses them in the flesh rather than the spirit. Eloquence is a curse. That's why the Apostle Paul laid it aside when he preached he refused to use the wisdom of man's words in order to preach the pure doctrine of Jesus Christ because if a man accepted the pure doctrine, it showed he had a changed heart and was truly the Lord's. Right. Jesus had given them a standard far higher than they'd ever heard. He taught with authority. Now, I want you to understand what it says right here. It tells us that in the perilous times of the last days, men would have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Right. Jesus taught as one having authority. He had that power. And everyone that follows him had better preach with the same power. And that is laying out the message, black and white, powerful and absolute, strong and decisive, that you have one of two choices and there's no middle choice. And we do not modify the word of God and men who preach anything different are on their way to hell. It's a powerful message. The Sermon on the Mount we come to the text verses twenty four through twenty seven look at the first word therefore when you see a therefore there's a conclusion being drawn so these words, these verses twenty four through twenty seven are drawing a conclusion from what Jesus had just said, and what had he just said? There's only two choices False prophets are just that. They look like they're sheep, but they're not. There's a whole lot of false religion going on that is not going to get you anywhere. I will say to many that are putting their trust in God that I never knew you. Therefore, if you want to get in the right gate, if you want to avoid the false prophets, and if you want to be received in that day, therefore, you better build your life on my sayings. Because it's not he that saith, Lord, Lord, that enters into heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And what is the will of God in heaven? The sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, whosoever, whosoever, I am so sick of hearing, whosoever will pray the sinner's prayer. Whosoever will come forward. Whosoever can make a little decision for Jesus and be saved. Let's see what Jesus Christ had to say about whosoever. He said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. The religion of the Lord Jesus Christ, who stood on this earth and preached this message, that I re-preached to you this morning, said, Whosoever hears and does, that is like a wise man, that man is built on a rock, that man no storm will wash away. That man's house will stand. His soul and life will be preserved because he is giving the evidence and the characteristics of the true children of God. Therefore, is based on what has just gone before. So what we want to learn from that word, therefore, is that these verses are describing preeminently the final judgment because that's what's under consideration. That is what verses 21 through 23 just gave us. And so, therefore, because it's not the one that calls that gets into heaven, by descriptive evidence, but it's the one that does, therefore, Jesus puts the emphasis on doing. Hearing my sayings and doing them. Verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. Brethren, it is is no value. It is no value to hear the Word of God preached right. if you're not going to do it. Amen. In fact, hearing the Word of God preached puts you under greater obligation right. than if you had never heard it. It's yes. hearing and doing it. Amen. That's why we have James chapter 1. Because that a man that hears the Word of God and doesn't do it deceives his own self. Right. He thinks, I'm blessed, I'm godly, I'm one of Christ. Because I'm in a church that preaches the truth. But Jesus would say, hearing those things are of no value. It's the man that hears and does that is blessed in his deed. And I preached a message to you about a year and a half ago about being doers of the word. From James chapter 1. To look into the perfect law of liberty and see that some things are amiss in your life. Like a man getting up in the morning and realizing his hair needs to be combed, but going on to an interview without doing anything about it. So a man looks in the word of God, hears it, comforts himself that he's heard the truth, and goes on with his life. He's deceiving himself. Because hearing the truth has nothing to do with it being of any value to you. It's whether you obey it or not. And so Jesus said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I shall liken him unto a man that built his house on a rock. I want you to notice that. This passage is not teaching what some other passages teach, that Jesus is the rock on which our legal imputed righteousness is built. This passage is teaching our practical righteousness by which we lay hold of eternal life by obeying his sayings. This is rightly dividing the word of truth. The Middle East, Israel is right next to the Mediterranean Sea. It has lots of rivers, lots of mountains. There were times of rain and floods. Jordan would overflow. The Bible tells us about it. Jordan would overflow seriously at different times of the year. So there were were water potentialities that could wash a house away. And we happen to have a great illustration right in front of us of some water that came into the Far East and washed a lot of houses away. And you, you look at those little houses that washed away, and they were built on the sand, weren't they? A few sticks going down the sand, they were washed right away. Because they weren't founded on a rock. There, there's, there isn't a lesson here in these verses about how we ought to build houses. The house in this passage is your soul. Right. It's your life. The storms in this passage are preeminently the coming judgment when we stand before Jesus Christ. But they also include everything that you're going to face between now and then. All of the doubts, heresies, perplexities, dilemmas, temptations, trials, afflictions, troubles, pain that you face in this life can be solved and managed by building your life on the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you build your life on the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ... You can look forward to meeting him. You can be like Paul, who said, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That's the, confident, the confidence of a man who has built his soul and his life on the sayings and obeying those sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no comfort in hearing them. There is no comfort in believing them. There is no comfort in professing that you believe them. It doesn't matter that you've been baptized. What matters is, are we obeying the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ and building our lives upon his sayings? It's the sayings of his. You know, men have a whole lot of ideas today. They have the purpose-driven life. Those are the sayings of Rick Warren. And they have lots of other books. But what does the Word of God have to say? Rick Warren wouldn't dare get up and preach the Sermon on the Mount and teach it the way Jesus Christ taught it because when he got done, his church wouldn't be a mega church. It would be a mini church. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't care what you think what you feel, what you believe, what you've been taught, what is habit to you, and what traditions your parents gave you. All he cares about is the sayings that he gave when he was here in this world and what are penned down in Scripture by his holy apostles. Because the words of Scripture are the will of God. Amen. And everything different from that word of God is corrupt and deceitful. To the law and to the prophets, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. This is the revealed will of God. Jesus said, these sayings of mine. And so we go to the word of God. Paul warned Timothy so many times in the two epistles to Timothy not to let any man take him away from the doctrine that Paul had taught Timothy. There are a whole lot of teachers wanting to teach a different doctrine to take men away after them. False apostles, an easier message, a compromising message. And we live in the days when that message is greatest, when evil seducers have waxed worse and worse. And so we have to come to the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ and see how our lives measure up against them. The Lord Jesus Christ points out in this sermon a number of times that the Pharisees of his day had already corrupted the message of God. Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. But look at 21 of 5. I want you to understand something about the Sermon on the Mount. I've taught this before. But I want our children, and if you have forgotten it, to remember this. When Jesus says in Matthew 5:21, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. We know that the words, Thou shalt not kill, are the sixth commandment of God given to Moses. But Jesus didn't say, It is written, Thou shalt not kill. Jesus said, Thou hast heard by them of old time. Your ancients, your teachers, your religious leaders, have taught you their ideas about thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you that their ideas about killing are very restrictive in order to justify themselves. And I want to lay it out right now for you to truly understand what God meant when he said, thou shalt not kill. Do you know what he meant? He meant ever saying something negative or critical about someone else. He meant being angry at your brother without a cause. He meant calling your brother a name. He meant ever thinking that you might have offended someone and not running to make that issue better. That is killing. You know, we read in the newspaper about somebody slashing someone's throat. You know, and the, the internet doesn't even want to publish it. The pictures of Nicole Brown on the internet. You know, where she was slashed from ear to ear by O.J. Simpson. They cover that up with a, with a, They block it out so that you can't see the gory details of her head being almost severed from her body. And we look at a murder like that, and we think what a horrible thought. But the Lord Jesus Christ in this sermon said that if you're angry with your brother without a cause, if you call him names without a cause, and if you think that there might be the possibility that you have offended someone, and you don't go make it right, you are guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. You're O.J. Simpson in the eyes of God. These sayings of mine. When Jesus said, he that heareth and doeth these sayings of mine, he didn't mean what the Pharisees said about the Bible. He doesn't care what anyone says about the Bible. It's the God's interpretation of Scripture by which we have to measure our lives. And see, I just made the sixth commandment a whole lot harder than it ever was. I know that when you read down through the ten commandments, you read the sixth one, thou shalt not kill, and you think to yourself, I've never done that. Every one of you in here have done it many times. But we don't want to do it anymore. And that's what Jesus Christ was teaching. We want to be merciful and kind to others. We don't have a right to be angry without a cause. And if it's anything involving you, it's without a cause. The, The only cause to get angry with somebody is when they're sinning against God then you can be righteously indignant because you're protecting the integrity of God because you don't have any worth protecting. Right. It's a huge difference. You're all murderers. By God's definition. I'm a murderer. By God's definition. When you pick on someone, hurt their reputation by talking about them behind their back, whisper about them, backbite them, sarcastically speak to them and slice them with the knife of your tongue? You are a murderer. That's what the Word of God means when it says, Whoso heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. Not the Pharisees preaching about his sayings. There's a a great difference. See, most people today go into church, hear the pipe organ baby, and look at the stained glass window. I'm not guilty of murder. They would hear that sixth commandment and not even think that there's a chance. That they've even come close to it. But the word of God leaves us all naked and open and condemned. And so Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 verse 24, It's my sayings. That's what I'm trying to emphasize at this moment. How well do you know Jesus Christ's sayings? The simile is clear. Building a house upon a rock. What's a civil engineer? Roads Roads and bridges. A civil engineer is an engineer that engineers the projects for society. He works for the government. Roads and bridges. How does a civil engineer do his job? He looks at a given bridge. They estimate the maximum stress that that bridge will ever have. Let's say that it's all got tankers sitting on it. You know, by the the, By some probability, even though it would be very low, it's not Volkswagens up there. It's all tankers. And a high wind is blowing. And they imagine the highest stress that could possibly occur on a bridge. Then they multiply it by three or four, determine what they need in the way of reinforcing steel and concrete, and they build the bridge. That's why we live in America. Thank you, Lord, for letting us live in America. Did you see some of the bridges in India? And Indonesia, after the tsunami went through, washed right away. They weren't founded in Iraq, and they weren't prepared for anything, let alone three or four times maximum stress. Now think about that for a minute. So an engineer is wiser than most men, isn't he? An engineer says, what is the, prob- what is the greatest stress? This bridge will ever be under. What if it was all tankers lined up on it? Men are foolish. Do you know what every man ought to say? What if there is an eternal judgment and I'm going to stand before God? Are you with me? Can you, I'm going to really test your memories. Is there a parable in the Bible? That Jesus Christ taught where he said the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light? Right and just. The unjust steward because they look ahead and make precautions against the day of trouble. We ought to be like civil engineers. The Bible tells us that a day is coming in which we will give an account of our lives. And we ought to prepare for that day by building ourselves on a foundation, by being like a civil engineer and realizing if that is true, I had better prepare myself for that day. That's what Jesus Christ is teaching. You know, when you go build a house, you usually build on a sunny day. You usually don't go build in a rainstorm. It's too late to build it in a rainstorm. Or it's too late to dig a foundation under a house during a rainstorm. You usually build in a sunny day but a wise man's looking ahead and thinking about the storms that could come and he doesn't just go back 5 years if you only built your foundation to withstand a 5 year storm in what year based on probabilities is your house going down year. about year 6 or so are you going to build your house based in a 10 year storm are you trying to cheat that all these little things i'm telling you right now are the way men cheat Oh, God isn't all that tough. He'll let me in because I sing in the choir. Lord, Lord, I've got a foundation. Have I not prophesied in thy name? Let me tell you something about how convicting this message is to me. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Verse 19. Whosoever therefore shall teach men that they can break my commandments, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Does it say that? It says, whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so. It doesn't matter what I teach from the pulpit. There is no comfort for my soul on what I teach. And I know I teach you the truth. But there is no comfort for me. The only comfort for me is that I do them. Do you notice that when this sermon opens, it opens to teachers that they better be doing and teaching even the least of God's commandments. The simile is clear. There are storms coming in your life. I know know my sermons are long. I know we get together twice on Sunday and I preach many times what may seem to you to be the same thing. Monday through Saturday I send you Proverbs that say many times the same thing. And do you know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to give you bricks to lay your foundation. I'm trying to give you the materials to dig deep and to build a foundation that will stand by obeying the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should, You should love repetition. The Apostle Paul said, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1, he said this, To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you, it is safe. Amen. The Apostle Peter said in Second Peter 1.12, As long as I'm alive, I'm going to keep reminding you of these things, even though I know that you are established in them. Right. As long as I'm in this tabernacle, I'm going to stir up your, mi- your pure minds by way of remembrance. Because, brethren, nothing that's happening last week or this week is to be compared to what's going to happen in that great day. Let's live our lives based on the word of God. I want to repeat these things so that you can instinctively know what God's will is when you face the trials or tribulations of this life and that you can obey his sayings and stand constantly before him in that great day of judgment. That's what these final four verses are in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is saying, based on what I've just told you, And I've given you 15 lessons and I've told you that there's two gates and you're going to make a choice which one you go through and there's a lot of false prophets trying to get you into the wide one and most of them are going to hell and most everyone that says that they know me are going to hell. Therefore, I've given you my sayings so that you can do them. Please me and show the righteous character and lay hold of eternal life and build your foundation for your life and your future on the rock of my sayings. It is not false doctrine to teach that you can lay a foundation against the time to come. Do all of you know that that is the Word of God? That I'm not making that up. And that your foundation against the time to come is not a sinner's prayer that you prayed, nor a decision you made, nor a time you went forward in the church. But it's acts of righteousness. And it's charity. And believe me, we want to answer the question tonight as honestly and as soberly as we possibly can about our duties in charity toward the tsunami relief. Because in 1st Timothy 6:17 through 19 it's the willingness to distribute and being ready to communicate that lays up a good foundation against the time to come. Does that verse help you understand this? Does this passage help you understand that one? They're perfect cross-references. Laying up a good foundation against the time to come by acts of righteousness. Because Jesus Christ, we're told, is going to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep on his left hand. The goats on his left hand. The sheep on his right hand. And he's going to say to them that the reason they're there, by their descriptive evidence, is that they took care of the least of his brother when they were on earth. I'm talking about the foundation. Brethren, if we will build our lives on the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ, the storms of this life will not move us, and the storm of that great day will not move us. We will meet him in confidence. Do you think the Apostle Paul was afraid to meet the Lord Jesus Christ? He was looking forward to it. He said he was confident in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He wanted to meet him. He wanted to depart. He just felt sorry for the poor Philippians. So he said, I'll stay for a little while longer for your sakes. I'd rather be there, because it's far better. He wasn't afraid. Did he have a good foundation? Even though he had wasted many years of his life, when the Lord met him on the road to Damascus, it changed his life. Did he press into the kingdom of heaven? He violently took it by force. When he hit the ground, he hit the ground running and went straight into Damascus. Got himself some food, got his eyesight back, and where did he go as soon as he got his eyesight back, so he could make his way down the street to the synagogue and began preaching Jesus Christ. Let me let me take you on a very fast tour of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, first twelve verses, because Jesus said, "Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, and here are the sayings, five through twelve, what we call the Beatitudes, they're blessings." Short little sayings that describe the character of a righteous man who's got a solid foundation. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Do Do you need help with that verse? Do you have a pure heart? Are your thoughts and your motives and your ambitions and your emotions pure? How about the verse before it? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In your dealings with other people, Are you always merciful? If you're going to err between mercy and judgment in personal matters, do you want to err on the side of mercy? Because if you're merciful, God will be merciful to you. Those are the Beatitudes. Verses 13 through 16 describe the fact, this is lesson number two, that your life should display the religion of Jesus Christ to others. He says you don't get a candle and put it under a bushel. You let that candle shine so that everyone can benefit from the light. And he wants us to let our works so shine before men that they'll glorify our Father in heaven. Lesson one, the character of the citizens of Zion, the character of true Christians, is in verses 1 through 12. Then we ought to let that character show. Verses 13 through 16. Verses 17 through 19. 17 through 20. Our righteousness had better exceed the righteousness of religionists all around us. You know, Bob Jones measures righteousness by not going to a movie theater. If you're a male, your hair doesn't touch your ear. And if you're a female, you don't wear pants. That's how they measure righteousness. They don't care how you baptize. And they don't care if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, as long as the Calvinist doesn't try to convert the Arminian. They don't care about those things. Seriously. Seriously. They just don't want you women wearing pants. They miss the whole Bible. Because right. the Bible has a few things to say about baptism. God isn't in heaven rejoicing over the Presbyterians. But Bob Jones does. It's sick. And so we have verses 17 through 20 that say your righteousness better exceed the righteousness of religious leaders. Because they always water it down. Do you know what a fundamentalist is? A fundamentalist is a religionist who has watered the word of God down until he has, pick and, until he has picked and chosen just a few points on which to measure men for fellowship. Right. And those points are so fundamental that anyone believes them except maybe an Orthodox Jew, maybe a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, you... Could could someone, you know, I don't have time right now. I've got a sermon coming, fundamentalism. But those of you who went to Bob Jones University and used to say the creed, anyone can say that creed. The Pope says that creed every day. Anyone can say that creed. Jehovah's Witnesses can say that creed. There isn't a thing in that creed that a Jehovah's Witness couldn't say. Only an Orthodox Jew would have problems with the creed because Jesus is the Son of God in it. There's nothing in it. And you know what Bob Jones does in our city? They claim that they are the citadel of the faith, the bastion of orthodoxy, the fortress of the faith, the defenders of the apostolic religion. They don't defend anything. Creation? Salvation? We believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Both Testaments. Great. Which Bible? So Jesus says in 17 through 20, your righteousness better be a whole lot better than that. Verses 21 through 25. 21 through 26. Jesus said, thou shalt not kill. How do you understand it? Do you understand it the way that it's taught? That you haven't sliced somebody's throat wide open from ear to ear? Or do you understand it the way I mean it? Anger without a cause. Or knowing that you might have offended somebody and not going to correct it. Matthew 5, 27-32. Adultery. You've heard the commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said, It's a whole lot more than just the act. If you've had the fantasy or the thought, you're guilty of the act in my book. Men and women are just as capable, capable of that on either side. If you've had the fantasy, you're guilty of the sin. And then he said, If you've used divorce... To get at a woman that you don't have a right to, you have committed adultery. This is the passage where Jesus said, if you're tempted in a sexual matter and it's as valuable as your right hand, it would be better to cut off your right hand or to get rid of that situation than to sin sexually against thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said, if there's some temptation in your life that's as precious as your right eye, it's in verses 29 and 30, pluck it out. That's how, Now, that is a straight gate and a narrow way. Right. When if there's something that is tempting you to sin, you ought to pluck it out or cut it off. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ with his lesson about adultery in verses 27 down through 32. Then, at beginning at verse 33 down to 37, it's honesty and truthfulness in all of your dealings. Not to swear like they swore. But to let your yea be yea and your nay nay, to be constant in your word, always be honest. Not to exaggerate, not to swear it before God, and to have all your dealings honest with men. Verses 38 through 42. And I hope you'll look at these as I go through them. You know, this is the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Pharisees grabbed that verse. Ah, I love the word of God, don't you, brother Pharisee? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That man messed with me, I'm going to mess with him. And Jesus said, if it's a personal matter between two men, and he smites you on one cheek, give him the other. If he takes your cloak, give him your coat. If he wants you to go a mile and carry his Roman weapons of war to assist a soldier to the next town, go two miles. Because none of those things matter. Now that's a new slant on an eye for an eye, isn't it? An eye for an eye was a civil judgment given to the magistrates of Israel. But if a man poked the eye out of another man, I thought it was pretty decent law. Wouldn't that be great on pay-per-view TV? Somebody that poked the eye out of somebody watching it get scooped out by a spoon on TV? I know what you're thinking. Your pulpit manner is disgusting. You're morbid and cruel. But that's what an eye for an eye is. It's what the civil magistrate is able to do to enforce laws in a nation. But it's not what we're to do to each other. Jesus Christ is teaching a religion totally different even from the men that were the scribes in the Word of God. Right. Resist not evil. Verse 39, a Quaker comes along and sees resist not evil and says, I won't join the army because I'm not supposed to resist evil. I've got to chase this one while I'm here. When it says resist not evil, it's talking about evil against you. If somebody wants you to go out and carry their weapons for a mile, go too. If somebody wants to take your coat, give them your cloak. It's not worth fighting over these little things. This has nothing to do with obeying the civil magistrate in those words and going and taking up arms to defend your nation, which you better do. Right. Understand, Jesus Christ is laying out a religion for us very, in very short lessons here. How about verse 43 to 48? It's how you ought to treat your personal enemies. They ought to be loved, blessed, treated well, and prayed for. Now that's a different religion. Look at verse 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now that was said because that wasn't written. That's how the Pharisees had corrupted the word of God. We come to chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. When you do your charity, do you do it privately? Do you do it for the praise of men? Or do you do it to honor God and to take care of his poor? The contrast that he draws is with men that sound their trumpets in the street in order to get everyone's attention to watch their giving. I haven't seen that in here. I haven't seen it. But look at 6, 1 through 4. When we give to help someone, we should give as privately as we can. The fact that I made some of those public from time to time is because the Word of God tells me to do so. Right. Look at verses 5 through 18 of chapter 6. It's how to pray. It tells you to keep your par- prayers private. It tells you to keep your prayers simple. And it tells you to, to include in your prayers the forgiveness of those that have offended you so that God can forgive you your debts. Beginning in verse 19, here is one mind about serving God and keeping worldly pursuits a distant second. From 19 to the end of the chapter, it's a lesson. No man can serve two masters. I could break the lesson down into more parts, but we might as well make it one. It's about being single-minded because it talks about a single eye in verse 22. It says, no man can serve two masters in 24. And it says to seek first the kingdom of God in 33. And it has other verses around it. So there is a lesson that heavenly things and Jesus Christ and his kingdom is more important than our professions or our businesses. That's a lesson. In this sermon where Jesus packed a synopsis of the Christian religion together. We come to chapter 7. Verses 1 through 5. When you're judging other people, judge very carefully in respect to others that you're not excessively harsh nor hypocritical. Because Jesus said it is wrong for you to be worrying about their mote or a little speck of dust in their eye, while you've got a barn beam in your own. Verse six: Don't dare waste your go- my gospel before fools or scorners. A lesson. Of the Lord Jesus Christ and His religion. No wonder they knew that He spake with authority. Verse 11, I mean, verse 7 to verse 11. Be of great faith in trusting God, that He's better than any earthly Father in giving you what you need. So there's a lesson in faith in verses 7 through 11 about asking, receiving, knocking, and seeking. And then verse 12. The world calls verse 12 the golden rule. What does Jesus call verse 12? All the law and the prophets. He said, if you want to boil down everything Moses had to write and everything that the prophets had to write about how to treat another person, here it is summarized. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And there's the religion of Jesus Christ. We just made a cursory review of it. There's a lot in there. There's your relationships with others. Thou shalt not kill. There's your sexual life. Thou shalt not commit adultery. There's the character of your soul. Does it hunger and thirst after righteousness, like chapter 5 tells us? Does it rejoice at persecution for the gospel's sake? Do you pray privately, simply, and do you always forgive those that have sinned against you so God will forgive you? There's the lesson. There's the sayings of Jesus Christ. What's the application? What do we conclude with? We need to ask ourselves a question every day. Has my righteousness today exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Because if it hasn't, thou shalt in no wise enter in. It's got to be better than what the world's preaching. The scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes, what did a scribe do? He copied the word of God. What did a Pharisee do? He preached it as the most conservative sect of the Jews' religion. If your righteousness isn't better than both of them, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Every day we need to ask ourselves, and I, w- I wish I could preach the whole Sermon on the Mount in detail to you right now, but since I can't, we must measure ourselves by that sermon and say "Is my righteousness, as compared and measured by the sayings of Jesus Christ in those three chapters, exceed the righteousness of all the religionists around me. Jesus said we're supposed to ask ourselves that question in the first part. This is how we build a foundation on the rock. You need and you should want the repetition of the preaching of the word of God. Because it is whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them is likened to a wise man. So first of all, you've got to hear them. If we were in a church where there was a lot of entertainment... A lot of activities, a lot of programs, a lot of storytelling, a lot of illustrations from the pulpit, a lot of anecdotes, a lot of jokes. Guess what? We're lost. Because we don't even, how can we obey what we're not even hearing? Do not resent the preaching of God's word. Rejoice at it. Listen, pay attention, review, retain and what you don't review and retain, I will preach again. Because as, I, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, I will stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Because a great day is coming in the which I will not only have great grief for my own soul, but for yours as well. And I cannot go back in that day and re-preach to you, and neither can you go back in that day and re-hear from me. Right. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to dig deep and lay a foundation for our futures. You know, if you were to live, if you were to live by these three chapters, most of the dilemmas that tear up people's families and lives and hearts and souls would just be like a little drop of dew on your yard because of the wisdom contained in these words. This is powerful, 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 material, 15 lessons all the way from prayer to killing all the way from personal offenses to giving from hungering and thirsting after righteousness to cutting off scorners in one short sermon no man spake like the Lord Jesus Christ two sermons a Sunday what are we going to do tonight? tonight we're going to Ask and answer the question, should we be helping with tsunami relief? Everybody else is in town. Should we be helping with tsunami relief? What does the word of God say? Because we don't want to base it on feelings. We don't want to base it on a personal opinion. What does God want us to do? You know, we've got a half a million dollars sitting in cash. Should we be using that to help? The reason we want to look at the Word of God is because that will be one more saying of Jesus Christ and of God, one more brick that we get to put under our feet to make sure we're standing on a rock-solid foundation. Because I'll tell you, love is the greatest of all the graces of a Christian's life. Right. Charitable giving is the foundation that I referred to earlier in 1 Timothy 6. We would not want to be wrong. On this subject. Are you with me? We do not want to be wrong. And there is an answer. And we'll get that answer from God's Word. But see, that's why we're going to come together again tonight. Fellowship, singing praise to His glorious name, praying, and then digging into His Word to find one more brick to put our feet on a rock-solid foundation that we're pleasing God, so that we stand before him, he doesn't say to us, when you had so much cash, why didn't you send any to the tsunami relief funds? We don't want that to happen, if he would ask it. I know that some of you are already trying to get ahead of me, but if you think you're ahead of me, can you prove it from a Bible? A comprehensive view of the Bible, can you answer that dilemma, that question? Now, we want to answer with the word of God so that when we stand before him, Lord, we have stood on your word at every point, every turn. Because we have an opportunity to help, but we haven't. Twice on Sunday, six times during the week, I lay the word of God in your homes and in our public assemblies. What is that word of God for? For us to hear and to do his sayings. So that we can build our houses, our lives, our families on a solid foundation to withstand the storms of this life. And to withstand the storm that is coming when we stand before him. Don't resent those things. Don't neglect them. Don't delete them. Don't throw the proverb into a wastebasket. Read it. Because it's whosoever heareth and doeth these sayings that is likened unto a wise man. And then we've got to do them. The way to build a rock-solid foundation is to take the Word of God and apply it to every decision in our life. Every decision you make. You should go to the Word of God. What would God want me to do? What does His Word say to do about this? Every decision. Every one. Then we stand before Him and He asks us why we did this or why we did that. Because your Word told me to. We'll be ready to meet Him. Every decision based on the Word of God. I'm going to keep repeating it. I get in the book of Proverbs. Do you see sometimes when I use the word twin or the word cousin in the Proverbs? Because sometimes there's twins in the book of Proverbs. Now, when I see a twin in the book of Proverbs, I don't write redundant on the pages of the Bible. I don't think God made a mistake and the Holy Spirit said something over here in 2712 that he'd already said in 223. I know better than that. The Bible repeats itself. Why is Psalm 18 in 2 Samuel 22, and it's in Psalm 18? Why do Ephesians and Colossians sound so much alike? I think because it's talking about putting off the old man and putting on the new man, and if there's one thing we need to have repeated to us, it's that lesson. And so what is repeated to us? And we have the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ and his life kind of repeated four times, maybe? In four Gospels? Right. Paul preached the whole counsel of God, didn't hold anything back, and showed them all things. Those three statements all come from Acts 20 when he summarized his ministry to the elders of Ephesus. I kept back nothing that was profitable for you. I preached to you the whole counsel of God. I have showed you all things. Amen. That's what the Word of God is for. The Word of God is to, for us to hear and do what Jesus Christ has taught us that the followers in his religion do. It will save you a lot of trouble in this life. Amen. And it will prepare you to stand confidently before the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Let's, be, let's be likened unto wise men today. Let's hear the word of God and do it. Amen. Let's go home and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And let's see the 15 lessons there. And let's do them. And may the Lord bless us. The Bible tells me in, Roman, in Revelation 14, 13 that blessed are they that die in the Lord from this day henceforth forevermore, and their works do follow them. Salvation is entirely by the grace of God, the free and sovereign grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by imputed righteousness alone. No doubt about that. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. However... For you to lay up a good foundation for you, to be confident in that day of judgment, it is your obedience that lays that foundation. It's you hearing and doing what is preached from the word of God. And may the Lord bless us to do that. And may he see us safely to his heavenly kingdom. For he said, he that doeth these things shall never fall. Amen. Second Peter 1.11. Amen.